Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to Making Change, a podcast on positive change, the art and science of improving ourselves, society, and the earth. I'm your host, Mark Open, and the title of today's podcast is an interview with the Reverend Rodney Sadler on how to transform American racial relations. Welcome, Rodney. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here with you today. Reverend Rodney, I'd like to introduce you to just describe a few things about your background. The Reverend Rodney Sadler is a graduate of Howard University and Duke University with a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Biblical Archaeology, and he's also studied at Hebrew University. He's an ordained Baptist minister and a former assistant project director with leadership development programs of the Congress of National Black Churches, former director of the Office of Black Church Studies at Duke University Divinity School. Currently, he's associate professor of Bible, the Charlotte campus, and former chair of the Bible department at Union Presbyterian Seminary. He has numerous credentials in leadership positions in the United States, consulting on so many issues that are directly relevant to the enormous changes and the tragedies that we're facing and trying to overcome as a country. Um, He's been invited to serve as an expert on matters of race by Churches Uniting in Christ, the National Council of Churches, and the World Council of Churches. I could go on. There's many, many things here. But I'd like to just get to um, the questions and thoughts. So, Reverend Rodney, I've known you for a while, and I have enormous respect and gratitude for your work. First, I'd like to just begin with, with your impressions of what is happening and how it is affecting you and your family and the struggles that you're in, particularly in your part of the country, and your advice and guide for how we can make some changes. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for the question, and uh, thank you for having me here today. Uh, it is uh, a pleasure to be here. I'm joining you from Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, deep in the, the heart of the uh, Bible Belt in America. Uh, we are in Charlotte, have been under quarantine for, I guess, more than two months now. Uh, we are uh, trying to, to figure out our way going forward. We are the hot spot in the state of North Carolina for COVID-19 cases. Uh, with, uh, again, as we've seen in cities around the country, a much higher percentage of African-Americans dying than their percentage in the population. And we are a city that is continuously in the midst of an uprising. Uh, the uprisings that we've seen across uh, the country, across the world now, are evident even here in Charlotte. There have been people marching on the, the streets since uh, Friday two weeks ago. And um, uh, that seems to be moving in a positive direction. Uh, the first couple of nights, I was very worried because there seemed to be a potential for a great amount of violence between both the protesters and the police. Uh, more recently, that is leveled off as uh, as more seasoned organizers have taken over uh, the movement, have moved in a more positive direction, and have begun to think about what comes next. So protest is wonderful. It galvanizes attention. It helps people to think about what 
what needs to go on. Uh, but then you have to negotiate. Then you have to work on policy. Then you have to do the lobbying work that goes into change. And I have the meetings with the people who are also uh, power brokers in your community to foster change. So I, I'm happy to see that that's beginning to take place here in uh, Charlotte. Um, when you talk about what's going on across the country and uh, what we see happening in this moment, one of the things that stands out to me is that uh, it is the convergence of crises, I think, that has amplified what's going on. It's not just that we have been suffering from corona quarantine for more than two months across the nation. Uh, people are eager to get out. People are eager to re-engage in their lives. Uh, but in the midst of that moment, to have the killing of George Floyd seen visibly on screen, uh, killed without a weapon, with a knee on the back of his neck. We watched a man die on media, on media and uh, I think that woke up America as to the kinds of racial violence that exists. And I think that that was uh, the cumulative effect of dealing with the racial disparities with COVID-19 mixed with the racial disparities of what takes place with police violence against black and brown bodies uh, has really galvanized this movement across the nation and across the world. The freedom that people have, uh, I don't know if you want to call being in quarantine freedom, but uh, not to have to go to work, not to have to, uh, to, not to be able to do these things, I think has brought more people to the forefront than usually would be able to participate in protests and uh, other modes of resistance. So I think that the, this moment has been uh, chirotic, as it were, uh, f the possibility for change is quite evident because of the circumstances that have surrounded that and the convergence of these various crises. Um, I hope that's also led to a greater awareness. What we're seeing from multiple lenses, healthcare, police violence, uh, and then because of all that's going on, uh, economics, we're seeing through multiple lenses the disparities that exist along racial lines in America. And we're because of that, uh, because of that, we're being forced to say there's something seriously wrong in our system. We've suspected it for some time, but now we are collectively aware of it. So you're uh, you've written very poignantly about younger family members and their reactions to what's happening, their reactions when they see Confederate flags, when they go out. And could you speak a little bit more about what is it teaching you? what's going on with younger people that you're very close to? What is it, the experience that they have and that you have, not only seeing George Floyd's killing and many others since then, but the, the flags and the counter demonstrations, et cetera, how is it affecting you and them? Well, thank you for that question. My, um, I have a 17-year-old daughter. I, I affectionately call her the bird. She used to be a little bird. Now she's just the bird. Uh, she is um, dear to my heart, incredibly uh, innocent and pure in the midst of this world that is so chaotic at this point in time. I think that she has been disturbed uh, very deeply on a number of levels. What was going on with the corona quarantine that cut short her junior year in high school, uh, kept her away from her friends, that troubled her. Uh, then you see what took place with George Floyd, uh, and you hear about the disproportionate numbers of infections and deaths among African Americans, and you see that there's something really wrong, that America does not value all lives equally. And it becomes, uh, this has become evident. I think so people of her generation are starting to wake up to this reality and to see multiple different ways that uh, black lives don't matter in the larger public sphere. 
This movement that has come, I think, has been welcome because it's been led by so many people that are young like her. I've been on the streets in the last few, uh, the last uh, week or so with younger people leading marches, uh, serving as marshals, uh, taking the role of police and providing order and protection for larger marches, uh, standing on podia, uh, speaking to large crowds of people who are gathered, letting them know how they feel. This has been a not just a youth-led movement. Uh, and when you think about youth, you think about young adults. No, this is actually a movement that has also been led by young people, people my daughter's age uh, and younger even, who've stepped up to the forefront, who've taken the microphone and who've said, uh, there's something wrong in our society and we'd like to see it change. We need to see it right. change uh, and we want to be part of that change. So before I get to the larger systemic changes that you and I have, uh, we've been on uh, committees together, etc. what, in a more specific way, I have two questions. One is about what would be meaningful to you and your family and your community from white people that would make a difference at this hour of tragedy and mourning? What makes a difference? What is not helpful? And what is helpful? I think two things I'd like to see from the larger community that identifies itself as white. Um, uh, we could talk a long time about my uh, aversion to the concept of race and uh, the way that uh, I appreciate what ta uh, Coates uses, uh, those who believe themselves to be white. Uh, two things I'd appreciate from uh, that larger community. The first thing is the arising of wokeness. Uh, we need white folk to become woke. We need them to become aware of what's going on uh, and then to become uh, more thoroughly trained. Uh, as to the history of race in America and the deleterious effects it's had on all of us, black, white, indifferent, everybody uh, has been negatively impacted by this idea. Uh, the idea of race is so corrosive because what it ultimately does is it says that we as human beings aren't equally valuable, that we exist on a, a hierarchy of uh, superior and inferior types, and that because of that, uh, the way that we're treated by society can be judged by the color of our skin. Uh, so being able to recognize the, the reality of race in America, the history of how this came to be, uh, the fact that this was not by mistake, but by design in order to foster privilege to some and take privilege away from others, uh, recognizing that would be a great first step. I think that the next step uh, would be uh, one that would be a commitment to do something about this. Right. We need to work about this, uh, work against this as though this were happening to each and every one of us, that we were all George Floyd laying our face down on the street with a knee on the back of our neck. We need to work on this as all Americans with that same sense of of enthusiasm, of vigor, of uh, relentlessness in this moment. We can't let this moment slip away. We've got to do something about the issues of race in America. One of, one of the interesting things when you said you want people to to know more and to understand more, and this is what's, so, what's been so interesting is that there's two very different kinds of reactions that people have when they know something that they never knew before. One is a sense of shame and defensiveness and humiliation, and the other one is compassion. Mm -hmm. And both are very common in the human brain. We all sometimes feel shame. We all sometimes feel compassion. And one of the interesting things that, that happens, a lot of research in my field in conflict resolution, conflict analysis, is that shame and humiliation don't do such great things to people. Not only don't they learn very well, sometimes they learn the opposite. They shut down. They, the humiliation polarizes and it, it turns them off. 
Some Americans seem to be reacting to all of this as humiliation in the in the white community, and and they want to suppress this information. Others become incredibly compassionate. They want to help. Just yesterday, I I thought my whole life I've been in love with Martin Luther King. I've been in love with John Lewis. I I followed this, and we all know that this uh, horrific idea of a of a convention in Tulsa now of all times in a, a site of African American massacre. We all knew that, but. Even I, after 50 years of being in this country studying, I didn't know there were six, seven massacres around the country long after uh, the end of slavery, long after the Civil War. And, and just knowing that can either make me ashamed and shut down, like I don't want to know any of this, or it can make me compassionate. So I appreciate your idea of knowledge and how we can help the white community know this, but also know how to shift their brains not towards humiliation, but towards compassion and solidarity. Let me you know. say something about that. I, I, I love that notion of uh, two different ways of handling this uh, sudden rush of new information. I can imagine that shame and guilt are significant in this regard. But I think perhaps a more helpful response besides shame and guilt is uh, shame and guilt come from a notion that I did something, that I did this. And right. a lot of what goes on with race is not anything that you as an individual have done, uh, but that our larger society has put in place. Right. But what I'd like people to recognize is not shame and guilt about what happens, but just an open awareness. Let this information wash over you. Let it sink in. Begin to understand the the, the significance of what this great horror that is race has done in America, and then utilize that to say, I may not have been guilty of doing this, but I'm responsible to do something about it. Take on that responsibility and say, I have the agency within this system to transform this system. I have the ability to make the kinds of changes that we need to see, and I'm going to claim that ownership. I'm going to claim that, that agency and begin to foster change even in this moment. That's really what I think we, we need to see. Not guilt, uh, guilt for the sake of guilt, shame for the sake of shame that puts up a barrier that uh, tries to protect itself as a defensive strategy, but a responsibility that opens oneself up to say, I can do something about this and I commit myself to make this change happen. So in that regard, what have you seen in your lifetime, long time ago or recently, what are the most successful transformations spiritually, ethically, morally, and politically of racial relations that you've seen, that you've experienced, or that you've accomplished yourself? Just just what, what's the best here to look for so that people uh, listening around the country can think, what can I do? And also, uh -huh. who do I reach out to and how do I do something? Well, a shameless plug for uh, the Poor People's Campaign, which is uh, Dr. William Barber's movement uh, with Dr. Liz Theo Harris, uh, that's having a very, a very significant event on the 20th of June. They're having a massive internet uh, virtual meeting. Uh, I think more than a million people are already signed up to participate. Wow. Uh, where they're going to talk about laying out an agenda for the poor people in America to resolve poverty, to uh, have a better pathway forward. I think this has been a wonderful movement because it's combined the best of our spiritual traditions, uh, bringing Christians and Jews and Muslims and Baha'is and Quakers and Unitarian Universalists and agnostics together at a common table around a theme of morality. 
Uh, and it's also what people together from various issues, backgrounds. I, I deal with healthcare. I deal with environmental justice. I deal with voting rights. I deal with education. I deal with women's rights. I deal with LGBTQIR rights. And it said we need to work together to form the kind of nation that we need. I think this is one mode uh, in which change can truly come about that can be significant. And I really want to put forward that moral model uh, that Dr. Barber has lifted up so effectively as perhaps one of the best strategies in this moment. Another thing that I would, uh, I really want to lift up that I think we need to do, uh, there needs to be a truth and reconciliation process in the United States. We need to finally say uh, enough is enough. We've seen the impact of race for far too long. Let's dig down deep and find out what the actual implications of this have been. We need to have hearings to hear from actual people, to tell actual stories, uh, to bring out that emotional response to what race is like, and to help us all feel it, black, white, uh, in, uh, indigenous, everyone feel mm -hmm. the horror that has come about because of our racialized history. Then we need to have a strategy, a track that deals with redress. What are things that we can do to begin to fix what's broken? Uh, the system itself, I believe, ultimately needs to be totally dismantled and then reimagined. Uh, the way that we uh, have developed a race-based capitalized capitalist system in America, uh, that needs to be fully examined. Uh, and I think we need to, to start over again with a new strategy going forward. Uh, I, one who would actually call for a second constitutional Congress where we can reimagine America uh, and say, this is who we want to be as a nation. We really want to live out those exceptional ideas of we hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings are created equal. Could you could you say a little bit more about what would be a non-race-based uh, capitalism or market economy? And what would be also a new approach to prison crime uh, that obviously has destroyed uh, generations of young black men and singled them out and, and outsized prosecutions and outsized prison terms and all the things we know about the prison industrial complex. But what what would you recommend would be a, not a race-based capitalism and not a race-based uh, prison for profit system? What so when I, think about, like. when I think about capitalism as race-based, in an American context in particular, I'm focusing on this. But I could probably say much the same thing for many European nations as well. Uh, in part, the concept of race made it possible to commodify human beings, to say that human beings were chattel, were property, and can be utilized to further someone's economic ends. Uh, when we dehumanize human beings with the concept of race, uh, and then place them as another object within a capitalist system to be bought and sold, to be traded, to be uh, later on after we get rid of slavery, to be imprisoned and used uh, as a prison, uh, uh, imprisoned workforce uh, on labor camps and uh, producing products as we even do to this day. Uh, this is a way of undermining the potential of, a, of any type of system, capitalist or socialist system, uh, from living into a true vision of protecting humanity. If we are to be a system that utilizes capitalism, we've got to find a way of balancing capitalism with human rights. Capital is not most important. Uh, whatever economic system we have in place, the ultimate value should be placed on human lives. How do we lift humans out of suffering and poverty? How do we help human beings get all that they need to survive? How do we make sure everyone has access to health care and all the things that they need in order to overcome the difficulties that they face in life? This is where a system should have its fundamental value, not in the production of capital for the sake of capital, but the production of capital for the sake of the sustenance of human lives. 
all human lives, all human lives treated equally. So that's what I mean by taking the concept of race out of this larger system that we live in. So that's amazing. So what you're saying is, is that, okay, well, we, we all know that there are some very objective policies that need to go. There needs to be a complete transformation of policing budgets. There needs to be probably an end to police unions that strangulate an ability of police chiefs to get out bad apples and and false testimonies and all that. Those are easy. What you're saying is that from the very beginning, there is a tragic way in which the slavery economy made people into objects rather than subjects, rather than persons, and that that legacy is afflicting all of us. Yes. And so that following the Bible, following Kant, following Martin Buber, you're, you're saying that treating people as ends in themselves as a part of how you make a living and how you make industry mm -hmm. would transform and cancel out the horrible legacy of slavery that's still afflicting the way we all make decisions yes. for profit. So that I, would I be, love the way that you said that. So that's, that's a far more profound good. critique and also an advice for the future. That's remarkable. Yeah. Yes. And, and if I were to, to say anything about this in this moment, one of the things I'd say is that I'm tired of uh, the way that we respond to these movements for black lives when they occur. We tend to respond and say, well, we need to make reforms in the police department. And when we make a few reforms, we think that we solve something. And then the next crisis happens and we realize, right. ah, Putting cameras on police didn't actually solve the problem. Right. Ah, you know, de-escalation training didn't actually solve the problem. For me, the problem is uh, we always seem to avoid the problem by looking at instances of racism when the fundamental concern is that we need to address the ideological issue of race itself. It is that germ, that cancer itself that undermines the ability of us to live as equals in society. The idea that race is real legitimates the inequalities that we see coming out of it. I, I, I liken it to this. I planted a rose bush near my mailbox several years ago. I thought it was a good idea at the time. A rose bush near the mailbox, and then it grew and it got bigger, and then uh, mail carriers would come by and would prick them. So I eventually realized I had to take the rose bush down, and I cut it down, and it continue to come back. And every time I cut it down, it continues to come back. And I started to realize after time that it is not that I have to cut down the top of it, that the manifestation of the rose bush, I have to get out the root. The yeah. root is the problem. The root is what continues to come back. And this is what we've done in America. We planted the, the issue of race years ago in the American psyche. And we utilized that to support the issue of slavery. We realized slavery wasn't a great idea. We fought the Civil War. We got rid of slavery, uh, 13th Amendment, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but we kept the issue of race. So the issue of race grew back again as a, another horrid rosebush. This time it was Jim Crow. Yeah. Civil rights movement, we got rid of Jim Crow. We realized it wasn't a good idea. We passed the, the, the Civil Rights Act. We passed the Voting Rights Act. We work on affirmative action. And then we end up with mass incarceration and the war on drugs. Yes. Yes. The issue is that the concept of race itself, the root of race that lingers, is that which continues to grow up and produce these horrid, these horrid bushes right. uh, that prick us, that, that, that destroy us, that uh, continue to erode away at the potential for us living into the American ideal of equality and justice for all. So I think that we really need to root out the fundamental issue. That's the work we need to do. We need to get rid of the concept of race, the ideology of race, and then recognize where all of its tentacles have had an impact 
on all of the systems and structures in our society, from what we talked about before, capitalism, uh, to uh, education, uh, to the way that we think about employment. All of these different systems need to be examined, and the way that races influence, the way that they manifest, needs to be uh, elucidated, and then we need to find a way not just to deconstruct the idea, but to dismantle those systems that are in place. Yeah, I, I, was, I had a brainstorm when... Um... You know, Lafayette Square, that terrible moment, which was a turning point in American history when the president co-opted the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to come across the street after he had gassed everybody and then to hold up the Bible at the church. And it was a horrible moment. And and a lot of us saw that as, as a fundamental threat to the future of democracy because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is not supposed to be, that's not a battle zone. And so it was a shifting of the military Okay, so he comes back, and thank God, um, he renounces, the chairman of the Joyce apologizes and says, I shouldn't have been there. Okay. Now, when when you think about the fundamentals of how the United States was founded, and George Washington surrendering as a general, and saying, I'm done, even though they wanted to anoint him monarch, a lot of people, the fundamentals of that original seed are still sound, even with a very problematic president. But the original sin of slavery, the original sin of people like Washington having slaves and not seeing that in contradiction with the Bill of Rights, that has not been healed. That original sin has not been reframed. And that's the one that is threatening us right now and is and, and that needs a complete rethink, as you said. So that's a that's a, also a very profound idea of a second Congress to yes. to reframe the vision of the society beyond this tragedy of, of, of race hatred and ro- rooting I, I it out. I'd even go further back. Uh, I've seen before a copy of the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, where it had a clause in there that talked about the elimination of slavery. Uh, had that been part of a document that uh, also talks about uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, if that was already embedded in the document, it would have changed our racial history from the beginning. Right. We would have moved in a different direction from the beginning. That subtle shift in that founding document has had incredible implications over right. the years. And I think that we need to think about, we are at a moment in time where we can recreate our future. So what are the choices that we have to make in this moment so that we make the kind of future that we really want to see. We don't settle for the kind of future that's easiest to get to, which is unfortunately what Thomas Jefferson did uh, in that moment with the Declaration of Independence years ago. Right. So, uh, you know, as we come to a conclusion, it's a short show. Um, could you just share where do you find comfort and inspiration spiritually and in your tradition and in the way that you're approaching the situation what what inspires you the most what verse or text or or tradition uh that if you could share with us i think there are many things that inspire me significantly one of them would be the great hebrew the story of hebrew enslaved uh, that after 400 years god would come and deliver them 400 430 years god would deliver them from their bondage uh i love that line in exodus chapter 3 where the Lord God says, I have come down to deliver, i.e. God is actively involved in the liberation movement of a people. I think that that's something that sticks with me, that motivates me to realize that, uh, as my people have always said, trouble don't last always. Mm -hmm. 
there will be an end to this. Uh, there will be a bright new day that will dawn on the horizon uh, and may even be dawning now. So I'm excited by that. I think I'm also inspired by uh, constant uh, narratives. As a Christian, uh, we believe that uh, believe in Jesus Christ who was crucified, dead, buried. We believe that uh, the story can end quite miserably, quite horribly, that it can look like it's over. But then early Sunday morning, God can provide resurrection. God can provide new life and that new possibility. So that gives me hope. That gives me constant inspiration uh, that we can hold on and we can overcome. I think back to Martin Luther King Jr. And I realized what took place in the civil rights movement. Uh, Dr. King started the civil rights movement with, uh, with his colleagues all around him with a Congress that did not have uh, many black faces, if any, uh, that would support them, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, maybe, uh, a president, uh, president, two presidents that they wrestled with that really didn't have all that much commitment to the black cause. Uh, Kennedy had to be dragged along, as did Johnson initially, to make the changes they made. And a citizenry, a African-American citizenry that would be his dominant group working with him that was not necessarily committed to change and quite afraid of standing up to police, of going mm. to prison, of all the things they would have to do. Yeah. Uh, and then on top that off with an American public that was diametrically opposed to issues of freedom. We don't mm. think we have a race problem. But in spite of that, they were able to make the changes that they made at that point in time. In spite of all the, the, the effort to rise, uh, rate against them, we're in a much better situation today, in theory, with uh, African-American and Latino and Asian and Jewish members of Congress, a much more diverse Congress. Uh, we're in a much more, uh, we've got greater access. We've had an African-American who served as president before. So greater access to, to larger issues of power, uh, economically, politically, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we should recognize that we have the ability. Don't be frustrated. We have the ability to make the kinds of change we need to do, uh, to make. We just need to develop the collective will to do so. Wonderful. Thank you. Those are wonderful words to conclude. And uh, I want to thank you so much for all of your work. I bless you with good health for you and your family and good safety. This concludes our program uh, for today of Making Change. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who's been watching. Thank you so Take much, care. Mark. God bless you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.